Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Today, I'm going to do a solo episode, just trying to mix things up a little bit. If you listen on the day that the episode comes out or even the next day, you might be questioning what day it is. But sorry to say it's not Thursday. It's not almost the weekend. It is Tuesday. Like a lot of you, my life has been a little bit crazy the last few weeks and things have not gone as planned. I could probably do a full episode about the several interviews that were either rescheduled or canceled in the last two weeks. I knew I was going to be out of town this last week, and so I tried to schedule that ahead of time. And I don't know, there's a saying, at least here in the U.S., that when you make plans, God laughs. And if that's the case, he laughs at me a lot. At the same time, like we call it in my house, chumbo wumbling. And I'm sorry if you're now getting that song stuck in your head, but even my daughter, who <laughs> wasn't even a thought, when that song came out, it was, yeah, I know, mom, I just needed Chumbo Wamba. I'm like, yep, there's a song from the 80s. It says, I get knocked down, but I get up again. And I'm sorry if that's now stuck in your head all the time. But it's actually kind of the theme of today's episode. Because while things have been a little bit chaotic for me over the last few weeks, I still have this underlying hope and determination that I'm going to get myself out of this hole and that I'm not going to be as behind. And there's a lot of really cool projects and things coming up for Fraudology and Chargelytics and just myself that I am really excited about. So I'm trying hard to not let this drag me out. I also have been pretty upfront about my mental health and that I do have clinical depression and anxiety and ADHD because, you know, why would anyone just have one? But so maybe I can credit a little bit my antidepressants for that. Susie <laughs> Sunshine look as well. But honestly, I um, know I have a lot to be grateful for. And I do feel like I have learned so many lessons in the last 15, 20 years of my career that do help me identify, oh, okay, yep, it's one of those times I need to focus on this or I need to recalibrate. So that is, you know, where I think I'm, I'm okay. But as I have talked to so many fraud fighters in the last few weeks, I don't not the case for the majority. And that's hard for me to say. And I feel like I've said that a few times in the last year where there's been different seasons of layoffs or other things that just cause a lot of fear and stress. But we also have not had a break from that. I feel like we haven't had a break from that since before March of 2020. And next month, that's going to be three years. Most of us have not had a lull, especially if you're in e-commerce or banking and fraud. You have not had a lull. You might have gone on vacation, but you probably had to bring your laptop. I was talking to a fraud fighter the other day who was like, technically, I'm on PTO, but you know how fraud fighters take PTO. I'm like, uh-huh. It just means that you have less meetings or none at all, but you still are working. And I think that there's a lot of things because of who we are and how passionate we are about what we do. It's so much more than just a job that when things are stressful, when work is stressful, when our bosses are unpredictable and fearful and I just all the things that have been compounding over the last three years to now be in a state where we've seen tens of thousands of jobs in tech just vanish very quickly. And even, you know, especially for those people who have lost their job and they now are very aware that there's a lot of people they're competing with, even the people that are left, it's really stressful. I was one of those people once 
during the last recession. And I remember going to our CFO one day and just saying, how do I get on the list? How do I get laid off? And I was just like, that sounds so nice. Get a severance because every time somebody leaves, I'm getting like half of their workload and I'm like making less than anyone in the company. And um, he was like, oh, no, Chris, you're turning out the lights. And I remember thinking, oh, then I need to find something else. And that was hard for me because I had built this the software and the team and the department and all the processes and procedures and everything from scratch. And I had a lot of ownership in it. But I came to the point then that I was like, OK, that's <laughs> I'm not leaving, but it's still, oh my gosh, those last few weeks, I have told a couple of people some of those stories <laughs> and they're like, oh my gosh, that sounds mental. I'm like, oh, I think anyone that's worked in a tech startup when things aren't going as well as they were before has experienced something like it. It's kind of like the twilight zone. And it just, it made me come up with a mantra for during those kinds of times when it's okay. Fear makes people do crazy shit. It makes people take credit for your job, for things that you did. It makes people show up to meetings that they weren't invited to. It makes people show up to work for a couple of days, even after they were laid off, even if they are in the C-suite, because that was weird. <laughs> he couldn't access his office, but yet he'd stop by in every meeting. All right, guys, tell me what the deal is. And we're all like, where are you going to off? That's just bananas. But after that, I just kept working harder and harder for so many reasons. And I ultimately had burnout. And there are goods and bads from that. I The good is that I wouldn't probably would not have the podcast. I wouldn't have the consultancy. I wouldn't ha know all of the incredible humans that I do. I wouldn't have had the experiences that I've had. But on the plus on the downside, like I lost a good year and a half of my life. You know, a string of injuries and accidents and surgeries and life was trying to tell me to slow down and I didn't want to listen. And I think for those of us at Broadfighters, it's because this is more than a job. This is a calling. This is our mission. And so we take it more seriously in the day to day. We take it more personally if other people don't care as much or I mean, nobody's going to care as much as you about fraud unless, you know, you have like lots of leadership and stuff like that. But within fraud, but at the same time. No one's going to care as much as the fraud team. And but at the same, when people start to not listen and disregard your counsel, that can be very frustrating and degrading. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today is just how the stress of the last few months and years are impacting us collectively as a community, because I think that there is a lot of validation in hearing that, hey, you're not the only one, not even close. And as much as I am more comfortable talking about fraud trends and nerding out on fraud information, I always try to rely on the themes of conversations over the last few weeks or the last several days for my solo episodes. And the only or the main theme very resounding is, wow, we're all tired and stressed out. And I feel like too many of us are trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. And either we need to adapt or we can't really make our companies adapt. We either need to adapt to the current situation or need to make other decisions. But anyway, I just kind of wrote some stuff down that I hope is helpful to you in this. And especially, you know, as a fraud sometimes it's so I don't really think about it from this 10,000 foot view of like, that's why this bothers me so much. Or this is why I care about it so much. Or this is why the rest of my company, I drive the rest of my company crazy. But I'm like, guys, I'm not chicken little. Like the sky is really falling. So even though I think every area of tech is struggling with this, with burnout, with stress, with just utter exhaustion, I think that we're dealing with it in a few uh, specific ways. All right, I'm going to dive in a little bit. I think one of the most challenging things that fraud fighters face or really that kind of sets us off the edge, and there's a lot of things, but when I'm talking to 
fraud leaders, especially, uh, you know, and they're the main person advising their company about not just what is happening, but what could happen or what will happen if XYZ is put into place is I feel like and this is based on my own experience, as well as talking with a lot of you, I, I sometimes joke that I feel like I'm the fraud therapist. I used to say I felt like the fraud or the priest in online fraud, because people would often divulge a lot of their company secrets. And I'm grateful that they trust me and know that they can trust me. And then I will not be calling the Wall Street Journal or anyone else to talk about that. But I now think that I'm more of a fraud therapist. I mean, well, yes, I do get to learn a lot about different challenges that companies have and different vendors that are good and bad and just all of those different pieces. I think the one thing that I hear the most is that human side, the fraud fighter side. And I have a lot of empathy. I'm happy to listen. But that's what makes coming up with an episode today hard because I had a couple of small things that you know, I know everybody's dealing with or stuff and anecdotes, but I just kept coming back to this. And then when I took a break and looking away from my computer, but then looked at my phone and went on LinkedIn, there was a fraud fighter that tagged me in one of their posts talking about how up until recently, they were working three jobs and they were let go from one and they cut hours back on the other one and that they've never had so much peace and relaxation in their lives. And I'm like, oh my gosh, could the world be screaming anymore? So anyway, I think one of our biggest triggers ever, I mean, I, I don't mean trigger as like the word that then gets all kinds of other connotations, but just this one thing happens to fraud fighters, especially over time. And it we all have different personalities and we all have different tolerance levels. But the thing that I hear the most fraud leaders and fraud fighters frustrated about in their role and their day to day is not feeling heard or respected, not feeling appreciated, feeling like I'm just over here saving everyone's ass and saving you guys so much money and so much bad press and saving you so many good customers because there's not as much account takeover to making them feel like they're safe here and they'll keep doing business with us. But yet you don't listen to me, whether that's because of our sense of justice or because we know the consequences and we feel strongly about protecting the company and our customers. But at the same time, like execs and leadership that could have been educated on ROI or doing the right thing are now leaning more into fear and really focusing on top line revenue. I remember this from the last recession. Our marketing department came up with some super gimmicky things that I was like, are you kidding me? You guys have not thought through any piece of this beyond when they sign up for a service or they sign up for their first purchase. And maybe you're not supposed to, right? Oftentimes, marketing is judged just on how many click-throughs they get, right? How many people end up purchasing. They're not necessarily, some parts of marketing will be judged on LTV, like lifetime value, but not so much. So they start doubling down on kind of those fast ways to get people in the door, whether that's gimmicky sales or not having as many terms and conditions or explanation of how things work or what to expect on the website or just not thinking through the customer life cycle. But also, there's a lot of pressure to let more sales through and less cancellations. And a lot of times we feel like, wait, the majority of those cancellations are completely fraud. Why would you do that? There's some other worries from some CEOs that I'll probably talk about in a future episode fairly soon. That was actually was gonna, part of what I was going to do the episode on today. But I know that there are some social engineers that are preying on CEOs and just C-suite in general's fear of being in the headlines for the wrong things, whether that profiling or whether that's social justice issues or other issues like that as they relate to fraud. And I know that's, you know, becoming a challenge. There's just a lot of pieces, right? All of these things are symptoms and not the cause of the economy being uncertain and uncertainty and fear make people do crazy shit. I will 
say it over and over and over again because it's just the truth. And at least for me, saying that over and over again when things were just absolutely nuts was helpful because it was like, oh, okay. Like I'm validating my experience, but also I'm saying I don't need to think through it anymore because as fraud fighters, we overanalyze the hell out of everything. And oftentimes because it's just the nature of the beast and it's how we've trained our brains and honed our guts, but we will often almost always look for the negative. That's why I think so many people have imposter syndrome in the fraud space, even more than other areas of tech, which especially for women is not it's saying a lot because, you know, a lot of us have it, we're predisposed to imposter syndrome. But I think that, you know, when we overanalyze everything and we tend to be on the negative, why would we think that we know anything? But same with just things that happen in your company or like, wow, my boss has never said that to me before. They've never treated me like that before. They've never gaslit me like this before. What the hell is going on? Fear makes people do crazy shit. That way you can just like, I'm not even going to take this on. It's probably not about me. And remember, the C-suite knows a lot more about run rates and everything else than you probably do. And they've got, you know, depending on where you're at, whether you're public or private or have investors or anything else, there's a lot of pressure. And I'm seeing it on the fraud technology side and the vendor side, too, quite a bit, where a few senior leadership are just like not even close to the person that I knew a year or two ago. It's sad. And I know that their employees have noticed it even more than I have. But stress is just it can be a catalyst it can be a game changer or it can be a game changer for the good or for the bad is what i was trying to say but as your company's looking at more top revenue line revenue i think it's important to know that and to try to align as much as possible or at least communicate that that's something that you're thinking about too um i know for me and the organization i was at i didn't do a good job with that and i would just say no very quickly rather than what if just tweaked it a little bit to include this verbiage so that if we were to get a chargeback, we can fight it. Or what if we were just to do this or that? I wish I would have done that, but I was so passionate and cared so deeply that everything was a battle and I would start fighting back and it just was exhausting and wasn't good for my health, wasn't good for my family, those things. I felt like it was my job to save the company from themselves. And there were a lot of decisions made by senior leadership that weren't great, especially when the investor money was flowing so that then when that stopped, they didn't know what to do. They just been spending money and making really crazy, irrational decisions for so long. So I was like, okay, I've got to save them from themselves. It's my job. But I think there's something else too. And this is something I only just noticed recently with a friend of mine too. He and I both grew up in the same hometown and it's not like everybody in this hometown leaves. I think Gosh, like less than 10% of my college class even left for college. It's not like, I don't know, it's not horrible, but it's just a lot of people take jobs that they don't really like, that they have and complacent. They're just, it's not the same as, you know, if you were born in Silicon Valley, for example. And myself and a very good friend of mine were talking not too long ago, and he had a lot of family emergencies and had to drop everything for work. And this guy had like never taken a sick day in 10 years, and he has a very high up title. But we're both college dropouts. We both tried to go to college and either couldn't afford it or whatever else and kind of really started at the bottom. We started in entry level positions in our industries, and then we, you know, moved our way up. And in my perspective, I feel like because I started at the bottom, I have such an understanding of the 
details and the process and the foundation of this industry, it really helps me, especially with my clients. Oftentimes, it's not just a fraud issue. Oftentimes, there's a payment issue too, and I can help solve both, right? I love to problem solve or identify problems and diagnosis, and then, hey, here's how we can fix it. And oftentimes, it's both. I wouldn't have had that had I not started out in a call center at a help desk for merchant services company that worked with primarily online companies in the early 2000s, which was rare, answering questions day in and day out. And yeah, I know that makes a lot of people go, wow, you did it. And I do feel some of that, but I think more so I feel like, oh, that just means that at some point someone's going to realize, oh, she didn't go to college for that. Even though I don't think anyone can go to college for this, especially the first half of my career, I was convinced that if I didn't work extra hard, if I didn't have the very best numbers, if I didn't reduce chargebacks by 98%, if I didn't work on the weekends and at night, one day someone would just come to me and go, yeah, you weren't supposed to be here. You're gone. And then I wouldn't get any other job. And that was irrational, but that was, I think, what was fueling it. And I didn't totally realize that it was a lot of it was probably because I did start up from the bottom and go up that I kind of still sometimes identify as that single mom in a call center making $11 an hour, not an international expert that's won these awards and has a podcast. I just don't fear to ask me who I really feel like every day. Probably the first one more than the last one. And that's me being super honest with you guys because I can legitimately think of at least 10 people right now that I hope listen to this. Um, and I think that tells me that there's a lot others. That's why I'm going here. I Those are some things that I thought of watching my friend who had two very large family emergencies and had to just take time off of work for two weeks. And he said, I'm, I still watch the emails and I see people trying to creep up on my job and you know, trying to do stuff in front of me or, you know, instead of me. And he's, and I feel so bad and it's killing me. But at the same time, I have to take care of these family issues. And I was like, do you really think that at this point, like you have a huge title for a very big company, very well respected in your industry. Like you continue to just go up, up in the company and you've worked there for over 10 years where they know what's normal for you. And they know that this stuff happens. This has never happened before. You've legitimately never taken a sick day, which is bananas. What do you think is going to happen? What's the worst that's going to happen? And then I remembered something that my boss's boss told me once at a job that was not a good fit for me, like early on in my career. I don't even know if I had a career yet at that point, but I was trying to make it work there, even though it just wasn't going to. And he said, um, you know, someone once told me that all of us are juggling three balls. One stands for family, one stands for our health, and one stands for our job. The balls that are that stand for or represent our family and our health are made of glass. If you drop one of those, it's going to shatter and it's going to be really hard to put back together. The ball representing your job, however, is made out of rubber. You might have to drop it once or twice. But the thing about something made of rubber is you drop it, but it bounces back up and you can catch it again. And back then I just had said everything was scarce, right? I was like, no, if I lose this job, I can't get another job. But I've now realized that that really is true because I have lost family members and I have had some significant impacts to my health in some ways, a few things that have become chronic and long-term and all that pain every day and those kinds of things. And so I, I've seen that firsthand. So if I could give any warning to anyone, it's, I know that it seems ridiculous. And like the people who say like, Hey, make sure you take time for yourself. Don't know what they're talking about. Cause I certainly didn't think anyone knew that they were talking about. Okay. It must be nice for you to be able to do that, but I can't. I'm a single mom. I don't get a slow down or I don't have a backup planner. I don't have a college degree. And it seems like Every job description says that you need to have a college degree, even though, again, there really isn't one you can get for this. Still gets slipped into a lot of job descriptions. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, 
other than a small oily fish in the herring family. Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Anyway, I'm not trying to make it all about me, but I hope that helps to give it context and maybe you can see yourself that I think anyone that's listened to this podcast for any number of the 160 whatever episodes there are know that I don't talk about myself super often in this way, but I just, gosh, guys, if I could, I'm not telling any specific stories about anyone because I just, I want to respect people's privacy. And I know that, I mean, when it comes to like fraud patterns and stuff, it's one thing and it's really fun for to hear from some of you be like, oh my gosh, I know you were referencing me. And I'm like, yep, but nobody else did. When it comes to like personal stuff and all that, I just, it's not my news or my business to share, but I can just say that there's a lot of people going through some really heavy stuff. And if we are with fraud, I think would be good of us to at least assume, okay, you know what? Like if I'm dealing with some hard stuff, everyone in my company is, we're all fearful. We don't know what's coming, but we need to remember it's not like this is the only company that would ever hire me. And life does have a way of working itself out. It's, <laughs> it doesn't mean that you can just throw your hands up in the air and be like, eh, doesn't matter anymore. Life will just figure itself out. But I really do believe, and I've seen it a million times over, or at least several thousand times over, when people do the right thing and they take the next step right in front of them, life does work out. And oftentimes it becomes better. If you're like, I don't know, still calling bullshit on me, then go back and listen to the episode with Jacqueline Hart. I cannot stress how devastated she was when everything fell apart very like just crazy and her story was insane and then like after she got through all that and she had I mean she literally was telling me like I don't think I can be in fraud anymore like I don't think I'm qualified this company that she was at for a very short period of time just made her question everything and then a couple months later she was hired at Apple and she's now at Google so like life works out and that's where I'm coming from I'm not just saying that to VCU Sunshine because I don't think anyone in fraud is always optimistic. We usually uh, tend a lot towards the cynical side or the skeptical side. As one of my fraud friends says, I'm not necessarily cynical. I'm just skeptical. So I have all these notes and I haven't even really looked at them very much. But 
Here are some qualities of fraud fighters that I think really contributes to our added stress. They are qualities that make us really good at identifying the anomalies. They make us really good at figuring out cause and effect. And okay, this is how this happened. Here's how we can fix it up sooner up the stream. They aren't always so good when life is unpredictable, when work is stressful, when your boss suddenly is a jerk, when you feel like you're telling everyone, hey, we cannot do this. It's going to be bad. And then it happens and then you're dealing with it. They don't see that as, oh, they care a lot. And that's why they're doing it. They see it as we're control freaks or something like that. So we do care too much. I think that that was the detriment of me and what really led to my burnout was in the job I was in at the time. I cared so much about what happened and so much about the impact. And I was the only one in my company that did and caused a lot of problems, mostly on myself. Often we take our work and our, it's not just work, it's our mission, right? So we take it really seriously. We have a strong sense of right, a strong sense of wrong, a strong sense of justice. So that's going to propel us to find that every last bad actor within our site or within our organization or identify these certain types of fraud. But it's also going to make us really frustrated when things within our company or within our life are not right, are not fair or just. I think that we're often not good at playing politics. We often say what we think and think what we say, and sometimes people love us for that. Other times, not so much. I actually had a situation last week where I was presenting at an event and didn't realize it till afterwards, and people asked me a few questions, and I was like, oh. but I spent like the majority of the time telling them everything they shouldn't do in their job. And while I was talking to a large group of people in sales on the vendor side, and I know that a lot of merchants, I think that was part of it, is I've been texting with a lot of merchants earlier on in the day, and they were like, make sure you cover this, make sure you say that. You know, at the same time, I really should have balanced that out. And I plan to provide a follow-up presentation for that organization in the next week that really focuses on what they can do. But I'm not good at playing politics because I just say what I think and I think what I say. And sometimes it's not advantageous, right? But sometimes I've learned a lot from my friends in fraud who can have some patience, who can know that someone's crazy, but know, or know that an idea is crazy. But instead of shooting it down right away, say, Hey, have you thought about the impact to X? Have you thought about what happens if someone posts on social media about that? Have you thought about this? Or sometimes they sit back and wait and then they clean it up and then they say, hey, we did a postmortem on this and this is what we've learned from it. I've learned a lot from those people. And I think it applies to other parts of our lives as well is that when it comes to a fraud attack, we need to hop on it right away. That is something that we have control over. That's within our domain. We see a threat. We want to seize on it right away. We want to fix it. But if we hear about a threat, whether it's a new business model or a new whatever it is within the company, and we think that's going to be a threat too to our company, we try to approach it with the same amount of fervor. And that's just not, doesn't work as well. Oftentimes it can come across as that we are egotistical and that we are not flexible and that we think we're always right and we're difficult to work with and all of that. And really at the end of the day, you're saying that because you care. And I was brought into a company to help that and they were losing multiple millions of dollars a month because they had no system and no anything. And I was brought in on a full-time position and that was kind of the last one where I was like, oh, okay. But there were a lot of factors, a lot of politics that people that were still on the team were the ones that were responsible for all the losses and they had a lot of pride. So me coming in right away and saying, 
hey, have you thought about this or have you thought about that? And I was trying to do it in a kind way. The problem is that they were already so sensitive about it that they took everything as me saying, hey, you did a really crappy job. But I just kept thinking, wow, this company's losing so much money. I just need to help fix it right away. I, have to fix- I don't have time to like slow roll it with them. But by the time I said, oh, that's what they needed, it was too late. I mean, it was, I was identified as the toxic person. And back to how life always works out, like those people weren't with the company very much longer after I left because I think when I was there, it gave them somebody to point to and say, she's the problem. She's the problem. Once I left, it was like, oh, you lost your person to blame. Now who's the problem? And Like I said, I made a lot of mistakes in that. I am not saying that they were the only ones at fault, but life worked itself out on that where I just had to bow out and it was hard. And it actually took a friend, a very good friend of mine who I miss every day because he's gone. He was gone too soon, but took him saying, hey, you need to stop trying to force this. They're not going to ever give you a chance. They don't understand what you know or how smart you are. They care way too much about their ego. You need to do over. And I still thought about it. But then I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) So here's a couple of things I've noticed just about like our response mode. Um, I feel like we have three of core ones. One is to fight and fight hard. You dig your heels in, you're indignant, tell your company what's going to happen if they do that. And when it does, you know, you kind of do an I told you so round. You try to be pushy into everything and say, I need to have a say on everything. I need to have control on everything. By doing those things, you push the other team away. You get labeled as the crazy one or the difficult one or anything like that. Um, And often you're then excluded from big decisions. And the majority of the stress and toxicity is going to be on yourself. And I say that from experience. There's another way that I see people do it. And this, these are the people that I admire a little bit more is accept and watch. I'm going to accept the fact that I can't change this right now. I'm going to say what I can, where I can. And then I'm just going to focus on what I can control. Real life example of this and a fraud related example of this. I think I've mentioned it before, but when I was at that startup, that last year and a half was just very fear focused. And ultimately, and I know some of you have already had this happen in the last six months or even two months. If you haven't yet, it's probably going to happen where at some point, you know, they're basically looking through all the couch cushions and trying to figure out where can we cut, where can we save? And ultimately someone says the fraud team is canceling X amount of dollars a month. They need to stop that. Who cares about there's no way we have that much fraud and who cares about the consequences? That happened to me. I was super indignant. I was absolutely not. I believe in my team. I believe in the product we created. We know what we're doing. That's it. Yeah, I didn't win that battle. So instead it was basically like, we're gonna tell you that you have to increase your approvals by X percent. And it was like an arbitrary number and there was no way to know. And so the compromise we ended up on and it was only because we had this in our proprietary, the system that I helped the engineers create. I designed the product. I'm not gonna say I helped. I did not code a single piece of that. And that's why it worked so well. But I designed it. We They were able to put in a feature that was instead of accept or deny an order, it was accept and watch. And I knew for sure the majority of those were going to be chargebacks. And the reason I fought for that was, all right, I'm going to show you guys how much money you're going to lose. And I want to make sure that this is not on my team. This is not on me for our chargebacks going up. If I accept these orders, all right, here we go. I'm getting ready to say I told you so. And every month it was manual because it was 2009, 2010. Every month I would pull a report and I would then look up each order or each account number. And it was like less than 20% actually turned into chargebacks. So what I learned from that is a lot of times when you're on the gray area of an order, and this is mostly for manual review, but can work as well for automated decisions too. And I think that in some cases I've seen some, not a lot, but like one or two of the companies that provide chargeback liability, I've seen them start to do this too, where 
there's always going to be gray orders, gray area orders where you don't know for sure it's fraud, but you don't know for sure it's good and it looks suspicious. And if your goal is top line revenue for your company, then you might need to say, hey, on all these gray area orders where it's not totally confirmed, we need to accept them and then we need to watch them and see what happens and then we can adjust things. But I've seen other cases where for companies where they're worried about the losses, they will then cancel more orders. And I do see a few companies that are still pretty heavily reliant on manual review where this becomes the play too, where they're like, oh, you know, we'll just, we know that we're doing a good job and anything that looks fishy, we're canceling because we're saving our company from chargebacks. And that's important. But at the same time, if your chargeback percentage is too low, you're probably failing too many orders that are good. And there will always be those gray area orders, but And honestly, if your company hasn't come to you say that yet, maybe take it upon yourself to look at that challenge and look at that. There are different ways of reducing false positives and reducing your decline rate, not just with your own internal manual review. There are other strategies to be had, but something to consider. I know I think I talked about it in the episode with Gil Rosenthal back in August talking about, you know, different ways to reduce or recover or increase revenue, knowing that we were headed into this time. And I think the last, I also see some people just freezing and having indifference and just being like, oh, well, they don't care. So I'm not going to care. And those people also drive me crazy. And they just stop caring and have complete apathy. Depending on the organization, you can skate on that for a while, but your own happiness and fulfillment, like you don't have any impact anymore. That suffers for sure. And your company still suffers too. I mean, I know of a couple of people who are just like, I'm not even going to bother to ask them for budget because I know they're not going to give me budget. I'm like, do you provide them data and understanding and explanation and No, it doesn't matter. They're going to say no, no matter what. Huh. Okay. Or it doesn't matter what I tell them. They're going to do it. So whatever. And that has an impact too, but mostly on yourself, like I said. And that's kind of like the Eeyore, right? But it's not fair to your company or your customers if you're just like, eh, oh, well, fraud happens. Like, whatever. There's a middle ground, right? And I think it really comes down to controlling what you can control and looking at the data, track the data. If you're not able to influence a decision that you think is going to cause harm, whether in different ways, it may not just be chargeback related. It could be in charge offs. It could be in accounts. It could be in ATOs, wherever that vulnerability is, track it. Take a look at the data. Maybe don't waste all of your energy on the upfront before you have any proof. Yeah, we'd all like to think that our track records would be sufficient and that our company would be like, oh, that's right. You've been right 2,700 other times. So of course you're right about this. No, but again, they're fearful and they're desperate and they're going to try everything that they can. So sometimes you have to let them. Now, the time that my CMO, and by this point, thankfully, I had started to pick my battles and wasn't fighting everything at full throttle. The time when the CMO of the company decided that the best way to get more revenue was to go into partnership with a reseller for magazine subscriptions. And we would just click the default. It would be opt out, not opt in. And then we would, uh, you know, just give that other company all of our customers credit card numbers and then they would charge them and it wouldn't be our chargeback. So isn't this a great idea, Chris? Oh my God. PCI had already been invented by then. And thankfully, I was able to say there's no way for us to get our full card number from our merchant processor. And that got escalated a little bit, but I was able to verify that first and then say, if you can figure out a way to do it, go ahead. I really, really, really feel strongly against it for lots of reasons. It's going to look bad on us, but if you can figure out a way, you know, I knew he couldn't. So that was a way for me to not go all guns ablazing if you're an idiot. And why the hell would you do that? And can't you think about XYZ and why all these problems? It's like, well, 
I'm not going to help you with this. And I think I did end up saying that because after I asked, they still wanted me to push it and say, well, you know, can't you tell them that we need it because of a system outage or something like that? And I was like, no, I draw, you know, you need to know where your red line is. And that actually reminds me of something. It was an interview I heard with the most recent former head of trust and safety at Twitter, where when the leadership changed, he wrote down for himself where the red line was, what he would not do. And it was trust and safety related. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was really good. I think it was on an interview with Studio 1A on NPR, or it was the one with on with Kara Swisher. Maybe it was that one. I can't remember. I think the one on Kara Swisher's solo podcast was longer. And then that's what he advised his team was, hey, have your red line, have your thing that you just will not do. And if you hit it, like, then there you go. That's your answer. But I think that, I don't know. So here are the things that I would love for you guys to take out of this, or at least start challenging yourself to be aware, because I think that burnout comes not overnight, but it's like a snowball being made downhill. It just gets bigger and bigger as you go. And then, oh, now I like barely move and I'm on the couch for weeks. Awesome. All right. Now I have to have surgery because I went too hard and I didn't rest my body when I needed to. Things like that. And no, they aren't hypothetical, but we don't need to get into all that. So specific to the business, I think it's really important to learn how to speak to the business. What are your company's biggest goals right now? They might be different than even last quarter. So are they higher? Is it higher conversion? Is it new customers? Is it higher dollars from your existing customers? Is it reducing? Is it all reducing expenses? Is it all of it? Try to align your fraud team's goals with those. When and if you have an opportunity and whenever there's a chance that it may make impact, speak to fraud's impact on the bottom line, the customer lifetime value, the NPS scores, right? Hey, you guys, the retailers seem to care about them more than anyone else, but it's like customer service scores, you know, our customer service volumes, just all of that. Offer new suggestions. Don't just say no every time. If you can influence a compromise, that's better than losing altogether. And that's what I took from the accept and watch thing, as well as just the humility of, oh, I guess we were over canceling. Wow. Okay. We need to recalibrate. Pick your battles. What's better for the greater good? Instead of going full throttle on everything, I think I said this before, but I'm going to say it again. I'm thinking of at least five of you right now. Instead of just going pulse to the wall on everything, right? And just this matters and that matters. Make some priorities. What's the greater good? What's most important? That helps me a lot with priorities. If I'm stressed out, I'm like, oh, I didn't get this done. I didn't get that done. Oh my gosh, my my office has become our junk room since Christmas. And I'm like, I don't but what's the greater good? It's getting my work done and making my clients happy and making sure there are podcast episodes out because I'm so fortunate to have amazing sponsors and more incredible listeners that I don't want to let anyone down. That's my greater good. That's more important than me beating myself up about XYZ. And you can apply that to work. This is something I really had a hard time with and still have a hard time with, but make yourself a priority. You can only do your best at work and you can only do your best when you are taking care of yourself. I actually just used this analogy yesterday how I changed up my zombie analogy a little bit. And I know that a couple of you have used the zombie analogy in interviews and in explaining things to your bosses and your leadership. And I freaking love that. I just am like, oh, yay. And I you know, always give credit to the fraud fighters in online gaming that I came up with that with them two o'clock in the morning or later, earlier, whatever it is in Vegas. But it's so true. But we talk about the bad guys regenerating and we talk about the bad guys being able to come back and fight even stronger. But we have to be able to regenerate too. This is a long battle. And like I said, it's been three years of just hit after hit, more fraud, more different kinds of fraud, more variations of fraud, more vendors that aren't always pulling their weight. So many challenges, right? Being expected to do more with less, not having as many people on staff. La, 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 the list goes on. 
how are you going to be able to regenerate if you're working till two in the morning and you're waking up at seven for your meetings? How are you going to be able to regenerate to fight the zombies that are regenerating themselves and that they're being stronger and faster and better if you're just burning the candle on both ends? And while we often think of it as a job, we don't always need to treat it like a mission, right? We don't have to treat it like a quest to save the world. Sometimes it's just a job and that's hard for us. I think that's especially hard for people, frog fighters, but and maybe in cybersecurity as well. But sometimes it's an end to a means. Sometimes a job is just a job until you find the next career, the next place to have your mission and have people appreciate it. Be realistic. Is this battle worth it? Will my leadership actually, you know, like, are they going to change? Am I just hitting myself? Am I hitting my head up against a concrete wall over and over again? Because I certainly felt that in my last position in corporate America. And it just was all it was doing was giving me a migraine. It wasn't changing anything. In the grand scheme of life, or you can do the six month test, right? If something's really upsetting you in six months, it's going to be as big of a deal as it is now. Do you know how many things like I don't stress out about because I just put that in there or even in a week or even in three weeks? Is this going to matter? Like in the grand scheme of like, does it matter? No, not really. And as somebody who works their hardest and their most when their kids were little, I have a whole other thing to say about how hard it is now that she's older and, and doesn't need me as much. And I still got to give her a pretty good childhood and we still got to do a lot of fun things and have good memories, but I have a lot of regret. There are a lot of weekends and nights that I really didn't have to work that I told myself I did. Based on the current climate and culture and within your organization and based on their attitude towards risk, like it might be time to start looking elsewhere and not just applying crazily and to anything and everything, but figuring like take some time to figure out like what you um, no one manages your career about yourself. That's something that one of my mentors told me years ago. I think I was always assuming, oh, the next best thing will come or somebody will see how good I am and they'll promote me or. You know, someone's going to come around and tell me that I'm qualified to be a manager now. Or someone else is going to come around and say, oh, you're qualified to speak at conferences or have a podcast or whatever. That's not how it works. I mean, most of the time, the people who are saying, oh, I'm qualified to do that really aren't. So if you're questioning it a little bit, that's good. That means you're humble and you fool yourself. But at the same time, do the damn thing. I know that misery can be comfortable because you know what to expect. But a lot of times it's the things that you don't expect that become the best things in life. And I'm not trying to be, I never, ever will try to be a motivational speaker because I don't know, I have a hard enough time motivating myself to get up in the morning sometimes. But these are little tidbits that have helped me. And so I hope that they're helpful to you guys. Make sure you take care of you before you become <laughs> like I was, right? Don't get so stressed out about everything. But then also get the stress out. There are at least two or three of you that are training for a marathon while you listen to Fraudology. I think that both of those things are crazy. Listening to Fraudology while you run and also running. <laughs> but I think it's amazing. And I know it's really helped your mental health a lot. At least one of you is running in like sub zero temperatures or really cold. I'm like, come on, there's got to be an indoor track somewhere, but you're doing it and you're making that choice every day. And that's a really big commitment. And you're showing yourself and you're showing your children that you matter and that you put yourself first and that you know it's important to care for yourself. And I'm not trying to be cheesy here. It's just the truth. So some of the ways that people get the stress out are through walks, exercise, meditation, journaling. I really love acupuncture. That really helps me. Myself and at least one other frog fighter enjoy going floating. I don't know if your city has it, but I mean, you can just put in like Epsom salt floating or sea salt floating. And sometimes they have a tank, sometimes they have a bath, but basically they just put a whole bunch of Epsom salt in there and it mimics the Dead Sea and you float. And it is not only makes weightless, but it's really like meditating. And it's a really good... It, 
helps reset your parasympathetic nervous system. That's what acupuncture does for me as well. And because I have really overactive nerves and fibromyalgia, that's really helpful. I mean, if some of these sound crazy to you or a little bit of woo-woo, like maybe try it or try something else, right? Maybe you need to box. Just something to get the feelings out, the stress out, right? Otherwise, you're holding it in your body and your body's going to break. My husband loves to go outdoors and hiking. He loves to golf. He loves to ride his bicycle in his wind tunnel downstairs in the basement. Because he has his bicycle on a trainer and he'll ride it for like three hours. I don't have to understand this crazy to know that it's super healthy and to support it. I don't think enough of us adults play enough, whether that's playing with the other with kids or playing board games or just like being silly and laughing. This is an area that I hope to impact in the next year. I'm just not doing enough like fun. And to me, it's definitely fun when you're not thinking about anything else. Even though it was exhausting when I helped take care of my uh, really good friend's twin three-year-old a few weeks ago or two months ago, whenever it was now. I think it's almost two months. I did not think about anything else most of the day. <laughs> so then in one way, it was like, well, I mean, and, and we did have fun. We had tea parties and we had Beyonce dance parties and we did crafts and we cooked and we baked and all that stuff. But And that was fun. But I also need that with my friends, too. And then create, right? If you love to do art or even if you don't feel like you're good at it, but you enjoy it, I like to craft. I like, sorry, I, my husband's very punny. And I think that I'm also feeling like I'm talking about too many serious things right now that I just felt like I should share that one of his favorite puns when I do any crafts is that I'm crafting my pants or go craft your pants. So there you go. If you made it to the end of the episode, you can now laugh at one of my husband's thousands of dad jokes. Uh, I love him for it. Wow. When you, if you do decide to look for another job, don't be desperate. Don't just fall into something and be like, oh, what can I do? What do I need? What do I need? Oh my gosh, I need to go here, here. I just need a job. I just need a job. No, take a minute and be like, wait, be honest with yourself. What do you need in a boss? What do you need in an employer? What do you need in a job? Comp package. What skills light you up and do you enjoy? What skills are what parts of your job do you absolutely hate? I've talked about doing the zone of genius activity that is in The Big Leap. It's a book and it's by Gay Hendricks, which uh, no relation to me, but it's a really good book. And he suggests really folding a paper into fours and putting your zone of incompetence, your zone of competence, your zone of excellence, and your zone of genius and list everything in your job. And it should probably, it should be an 80-20 rule. You should be doing more things in your zone of genius and your more in your zone of excellence than you're doing in your zone of competence where like, yeah, I can do it. I don't really care. And your you know, zone of incompetence where I really can't do it. And so it takes me like three times as long to do it than anyone else. That's why I got an assistant recently. And oh my gosh, she loves doing Excel spreadsheets and drafting things up. Those I, or doing invoices, all those things just take me too long. It's not where I'm good at. It's not what I enjoy, but it's also going to take me longer than someone else. So take some time to think about that. What type of company do you want to work for? What impact do you want to make? Ask questions in the interview process that helps you with that. I know I was speaking with a fraud fire the other day that recently got a job that is just seems like a really good fit for them. And they said some of the questions they asked that helped them rule out other companies was, when was the last time you took a lunch break? And the person's like, what? What do you mean? Oh, that kind of helps you with work-life balance. Just things like that. What do you need in a leader if you're interviewing with people that will be your direct report? Or in your leader, right? If you're interviewing with your leader or who could be your leader, what is your perfect person? Is it somebody who you just know can do it? Or do you need check-ins? Or what do you need? Figure those out. And I think you just, we all need to lean into trust and faith that things will work out versus the panic 
that they won't. And I don't think that trust or faith is a delusion. Like, I think it's faith and hard work, right? You're not just, oh, okay, I'm going to, something's going to work out, but I'm going to keep doing the same thing. No, you keep going in that right direction. But, and I found for me a couple of times when I was unhappy in my position, I would just look at job postings and go, oh yeah, no, you know what? I'm better where I'm at right now. I'm going to make it work. And other times I was like, oh, there's actually some things out here. And also with just how fast the world is changing, don't limit yourself. Did I in any way or shape or form think that I was going to start a podcast and have incredible companies be willing to sponsor it? When I started this three years ago, I mean, it was a slog. It took a couple of years before, I mean, it stopped losing me money, but I did it because I enjoyed it and I needed an outlet and because I knew that our industry needed community more than anything. And I think we still do. And I know that the podcast is more of a one-way conversation than a two-way conversation, but I am working toward more steps to make that a community. And the other thing I was going to say, and I don't know, I might be opening myself up to a lot of messages, but, and I will do my very best to answer them. Sometimes the most heartfelt ones are the hardest ones for me to answer because I think, okay, I don't have time right now, but I'll do it later. And then I forget, but I, please know I always want to. But if you're like, it'd be really nice to talk to some of these other front buyers that are feeling this way or whatever, let me know. Reach out to my assistant. I'm at info at chargelixconsulting.com or on my LinkedIn. She categorizes those for me, which has been helpful and helped me uh, be able to respond to more. Or at least I'm trying and know, okay, these ones are just like somebody saying a fact or try to sell me something. And these ones, they actually have a question for you. But maybe let me know. And I am happy to create a fraud fighter happy hour or just open up a Zoom line from this time to this time if anyone wants to come on and just pick each other's brains on how they've handled certain situations or just like, I don't know, be with each other. I know we have a big conference coming up soon. I will be there, but a lot of people can't be. And that's a whole other rant for me. All right. When I started this episode, I was like, all right, it'll be easy. I'll keep it under 30 minutes. And that did not happen. But I hope for you and still seeing, I hope this is helpful. I just think sometimes we focus too much on the tactical parts of fraud fighting and not the human parts. And if we don't at least recognize the human parts and get to understand ourselves and what motivates us and when to call it quits and that we can't save everyone and we can't do everything, then we're all going to fall apart soon. And like I said, there's no we cannot have everybody on burnout. Like we can't afford it, but neither can you. And and I don't want that for anyone else. I am thinking of all of you. I will have a great interview guest on Thursday's episode this week, and we will uh, be back to regular cadence next week. And I will be working twice as hard the next couple of weeks to be able to have some consistent episodes and guests in advance. And I have been saying that to my poor editors, Husky Media. I am just eternally grateful for you both and your teams, but I am doing my best to get my stuff together too. All right, guys, I will talk to you soon. Bye. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.